Hello and welcome to the IBMS Biopods. I'm Rob. And this is Becca. These Biopods will give you an insight into Congress with exclusive interviews, behind the scenes chit chats, and maybe even a drop of science. So put down your pets, move away from the microscope, and get ready for a Biopod Deep Dive. Happy New Year and welcome to our first podcast of 2020. In this episode, we're joined by esteemed haematologist Professor Barbara Bain who talks about everything from her formative years to her passion for Italian art. She's also written a feature for the January issue of The Biomedical Scientist. So if you enjoyed this podcast, turn to page 24 of the new issue. Thanks, and hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the IBMS Biopods, Professor Baines. Lovely to have you. Um, For the benefit of our listeners, if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about you and your work. Right, so uh, I'm the uh, Professor of Diagnostic Haematology at Imperial College London, an honorary consultant haematologist at St Mary's Hospital. Uh, you might describe me as semi-retired. Uh, I work half a day a week regularly teaching registrars and teaching biomedical scientists, and then some days a week when there are students to be taught either undergraduate or postgraduate for Imperial College. Brilliant. So. Tell us a bit about your early life, and you uh, you grew up in Australia. Yes, yes. So I graduated in medicine in Australia. I then trained as a physician in Australia and got a membership of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Then I came to the United Kingdom uh, to work in uh, Professor Dacey's department at uh, Hammersmith Hospital to start training in haematology. So I did a year uh, with him. and for that, I had the support of the Australasian College of Physicians who gave me a scholarship for a year. Then I got a job at uh, St Mary's Hospital under the late Professor Mollison. Worked there for a couple of years and did some more training. And then I went back to Hammersmith for another year and did the exam of the uh, Royal College of Pathologists. So I was then trained as a, a physician and also as a, a haematologist. Then I went back to Australia and worked for about four years there. And then I came back to St Mary's where I've been ever since. And what made you come from Australia over to England? Was it there was more chance for career progression, more opportunities? Uh, or? Well, in, in 1971, when I first came, Australians are very mobile. And in, in those days, everybody um, who wanted postgraduate training tended to go to either Britain or, or the United States. Um, nowadays, that's much less done because nowadays there are plenty of training opportunities within Australia. But in those days... Uh, Medics in Australia travel greatly to, to train. And, and you specialised in haematology. Why, why did you why did you decide to do that? Uh, I quite like the combination of uh, of laboratory work and uh, clinical work. I I found histopathology quite interesting as well, but I wasn't really c- prepared to commit to not seeing patients. Whereas with haematology, you have the great advantage that you can see a patient, treat a patient, look at their bone marrow and blood in the laboratory, and so on. So it's uh, it, it can have give you a very integrated uh, approach. So, so is, is that is seeing the patient something that's important to you with making a clinical decision, or, or is it are you someone who likes seeing people and interacting with people? Is that part well, of I think it's it seems sort of more genuine medicine to be dealing with patients than merely to be in a laboratory just seeing patient um, tissues. So. I think people who go into medicine go into medicine in general because they like the idea of seeing patients and uh, I didn't want to give that up early in my my career. Late, later in my career I, I did far more laboratory work and much less 
clinical work and um, since I've semi-retired, I've done, done only uh, laboratory work, not clinical, because it becomes impossible to keep up with the volume of, of new knowledge to, uh, to, to look after patients unless you're being very full-time at it, whereas laboratory haematology, you can keep up with uh, working part-time. And we've heard a lot at this Congress about the profile of the profession and do, do you think this, this lack of the kind of clinical patient-facing side of things has an impact on the way the public perceive the profession? Because you see lots of TV with nurses, doctors, but because most biomedical scientists for most of the time <clears throat> are behind a lab door, mm-hmm. do, do you think that affects the way the profession is perceived? I don't think it does from the point of view of the general public. I think they can accept the idea that there are scientists working behind the scenes who, who are doing important things although maybe you should get a popular television program made about biomedical <laughs> scientists to increase their profile. Um, but what I, what I do think has changed in the time I've been in, in the profession is a rather regrettable uh, division between clinical and, and laboratory haematology from the point of view of the haematologist because the clinical work has become uh, so onerous that uh, it's often very hard for uh, haematologists to get time to go to the laboratory and you then tend to get a small number of haematologists who do the laboratory work, but maybe not not enough who are committed to that side of it. Well, and, and you've had um, you've had some mentors in your life who have um, kind of carried you through your career a little bit. Who, who who are these people, and what kind of influence has having mentors had on your on your working life? So the, there was. Uh, the late Professor David Galton and uh, Professor Daniel Kotowski have been the important mentors. When I first arrived in Hammersmith, they were in the leukaemia unit and I worked closely with them for a number of years and kept in touch for uh, quite considerable time afterwards. Why they were important as mentors to many people uh, was that they were both very laboratory and science-based and very interested in research, but they were also compassionate people who cared very much for their patients. So I think uh, they were you know, two consultant haematologists that anybody could, could emulate. And you've also said about with, with the, um, the mentoring, and you've also spoken a lot about your teaching and how important that is to you. Do, do you think there is enough currently of people who are entering the profession and people who are just starting on specialist routes do you think there is enough mentoring and enough kind of dedicated teaching for them and enough guidance? Mm. I think it's probably a bit patchy. And what's made it more difficult is now that junior staff rotate uh, between quite a large number of hospitals. So if you've got someone in one hospital for a year or two years uh, or three years or four years even, uh, then they're going to be very closely guided by the consultants in, in that hospital. If they're rotating at short intervals, maybe six months only in one place or a year in one place, I think it's it's harder and it needs a lot of communication between the people who are guiding them in different hospitals to make sure that, that they are being adequately uh, supported. Obviously, rotating in around different hospitals give you a broader experience, so it's got advantages, but it has got disadvantages from the point of view of being guided by somebody who knows what problems you've had, knows what your expectations are, what your aims are, and, and so on. Uh, are there other countries who have better models and systems in place than us that we can learn from? Or uh, I suspect they're probably all having fairly similar problems. Mm. Right. And um, you've written 
very, very widely. You've written teaching materials, mm-hmm. textbooks, uh, what, what, and academic papers. What, what drives this, um, this kind of need to write and across different, mm. so many different formats? Well, I've, I've always been interested in teaching, um, even from very early in, in my career, and the writing is really an extension of that. But I've always kept um, copious notes on, on, on things and then it seemed sensible to put them into a format that could be uh, shared with other people. And both teaching and writing are a good way to make sure you, you keep up to date because you, you need to be reading widely. You need to be learning yourself if you're to teach. Also, your knowledge can't be static. You've got to be expanding your knowledge. So teaching and practice uh, and writing, really, the three of them go hand in hand. And you said at the start that you were, you were semi-retired. But it mm-hmm. seems to me like you're incredibly busy. You're doing lots of talks. You're mm-hmm. doing lots of writing. You're doing lots of work. And you're also speaking fluent Italian. Is that correct? Mm, reasonably fluent, yes. A lot better than my Italian, I imagine. <laughs> and um, very interested in art history. And you, you seem to have loads and loads of things going on. How do you, mm. how do you well, balance ra- all that and find a kind of happy medium with your life? Yes, ra- rather too many. I, I, although I'm semi-retired, I, I work pretty well full-time because when I'm at home I'm at the computer the entire day either writing or reading journals or or editing so I I edit for the uh, British Journal of Haematology I edit for a French uh, morphology online uh, teaching resource called EMAT I've just quite recently started editing for the Thalassemia International uh, Federation put making sure their things are in good English it'll be easily understood by everyone and and so on and I do a monthly uh, morphology update for the American Journal of Hematology so I'm at the computer doing all those things and also updating the the, the next book that's meant to come come out um, I need to actually do a bit less uh, I am <laughs> attempting to do more than I can reasonably do uh, it sounds like your semi-retirement is a lot busier than my full working life to be <laughs> <It's honest. possible. laughs> um, and you translated a couple of books into Italian? Is that all, no, out of, Itali- out, out of Italian, Italian yes. How did, that, how did that project um, work? Well, I've been learning Italian for uh, going on 20 years now. Um, and the books I've translated are um, written by by friends who are interested in, in morphology. So they're, they're morphology textbooks, which I translated in, into English. A few of my books have been translated in, into Italian, but not by me. My Italian is not quite good enough to uh, to translate a large uh, textbook. Uh, but also, Italian haematologists, at least, are generally pretty fluent in, at English, at least from the point of view of reading it, if not speaking it. So, there's some of the books um, have not been translated for for that um, that reason. And let's talk briefly about art and art galleries and what, what inspired mm-hmm. that love, because I'm sure a lot of people <laughs> listening will want to know right. a bit well, about you as, you as a person. How that well, the about. Italian came out of out of that. In fact, I've always been interested in art. I actually did art at, at high school. We did we did six subjects at our final year in my high school, so you had scope to do quite a lot of things. So one of my six was, was art. Um, my main non-medical interest is... Uh, a saint called Saint Sebastian, who's a plague to be invoked against. Uh, sorry, who's a saint to be invoked against the bubonic plague. Uh, so he's of medical uh, interest, 
and I and my husband have been collecting images of him throughout the world for the last 20 years or, or more. We've now got a collection of about 8,000 images on our, our website and we started to learn Italian uh, to aid this research because mm. a lot of the important works of art are in Italian museums and churches and we wanted to be able to talk to people and if a work wasn't there to find out where was it, has it been stolen, have they put it in the storeroom, what have they done with it. So we started off learning Italian purely for art history reasons but then because we'd learnt the language I then started getting links with uh, various mm. Italian haematologists. So I've lectured quite widely in Italy um, in the Veneto and Liguria and Sardinia and uh, down in the bottom of Italy um, as well. And the Italians are so pleased to have a foreigner who is willing to lecture to them in Italian yeah. that they're prepared to put up with quite a lot of imperfections in your language. And also I've got Italian uh, colleagues in, in Britain who check the PowerPoint presentation, so at least they're, they're accurate even yeah. if there are errors in my spoken uh, Italian. And um... What, what, what are you going to do with all the? Are you planning a book, um, or, or is it just a personal research well, that you love doing? Or the uh, we did try to get a book published on Saint Sebastian in art a very long time ago, and it was almost accepted for publication, but they decided it wasn't economically viable. Uh, but I'm still hoping that one day um, it might get written and published. But until such time as that happens, the website is there and it's really available. So if anyone wants it, they if they just put in Saint Sebastian in art, uh, they'll find the, the website and they can look at all 8,000 uh, images which have got quite a lot of details about the artist and provenance and all that sort of thing. And have you got a favourite piece of art? If, if people are listening <laughs> and they're going to go and look at one picture mm. or one piece of art, what should they go and look at? Mm. One of the most famous is... is um, Florentine artist called Sodoma. That's quite an attractive one. That's a, an almost naked figure pierced with arrows tied to a tree. That uh, sounds <laughs> yes. Some of the Venetian ones are, are, are rather good. Titian, uh, for example, did a very beautiful one. Uh, they're very varied though. So in the time of the Renaissance, a lot of them were naked and in recent or near naked. In recent times, he's become a homosexual um, icon as well but in other countries he's he's sort of sober and clothed and maybe holding his arrow and dressed elegantly like a gentleman so it's it's very varied and he's coupled up with different other plague saints so he often appears with Saint Roach who's also uh, he's a French saint who's invoked against the plague so the plague um, element of it is is quite interesting and he tended to get painted enormously when there was an outbreak of the of the plague in the hope that uh, people who prayed to him would be uh, spared the ravages of the plague. Were they? Well, <laughs> in the sixth century in Rome, the plague stopped when he was invoked. So that was his first claim to fame, oh. but it wasn't a randomized controlled trial. <laughs> of course. And what about one tip for people? I'm sure there'll be lots of young people entering haematology, listening to this thinking they would like, what, what one tip would you give them for their career? One kind of takeaway piece of advice? Uh, well, to be enthusiastic and want to learn, and uh, for me, the microscope is, uh, is quite central, and I think we should try and keep that central. Obviously, modern technology is amazing, but sometimes with a microscope, you can make a diagnosis in 30 seconds, and even if you can't, it, it will illuminate all, all the other special, special tests. So love the subject and don't neglect the microscope, I would say. Brilliant. 
these are very light-hearted, okay. so we don't need to think too much about them. So I'll start off following off on that one from Rob. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? <laughs> I don't think I've ever listened to any advice. <laughs> that in itself is very good advice. <laughs> um, who is your science hero? Hmm. Don't think I've got one. No, that's fine. <laughs> Um, have you had a favourite diagno like diagnosis throughout your career? Is there anything that's been particularly exciting or surprising? Um, I guess you have to distinguish between those that are critical for the patient and, and therefore terribly important and those that are, are just entertaining for the person looking down the microscope. From the point of view of life-saving diagnoses, I think malaria is very much up there. And I've seen a number of patients um, who's where the clinicians haven't thought of malaria and it's been recognised just on a routine blood film in the lab, including some who, who, who've been quite gravely ill when the diagnosis is made. And similarly, um, acute pomalocytic leukaemia is a terribly important diagnosis, which you may make with just a few seconds at the microscope. So from you know the serious medical point of view, I'd put those two things first. Uh, from the point of view of, uh, of entertainment, um, Red cells are quite interesting and Southeast Asian ovalocytosis is a diagnosis I quite like because it's interesting to look at. Mm -hmm. And when I'm sitting at the microscope with trainees, we, we often see red shells uh, shaped like fish or dragons or something of the sort. They're all very entertaining. Excellent, lovely answer. We even have a, someone, a biomedical scientist gave me a lovely image of a monocyte shaped like the British Isles. I'm quite fond of that one. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's incredible. Start an image collection of those as yes. well. Um, do you have a favourite piece of lab equipment? Well, obviously the, the microscope. microscope. Yeah, excellent. Um, can you describe your job in three words? Mm, interesting, challenging, and maybe a bit too much of it. Very good. And lastly, what is your favourite thing about Congress? Oh, uh, meeting old friends, really. I find that, uh, I, I like the science, but uh, meeting people that you've worked with over the years... It, I put ahead of the science, in fact. Mm -hmm. That's excellent. Perfect. Now we have overrated, underrated, correctly rated. So team building exercises, overrated, underrated, mm. or correctly rated? Mm, probably correctly. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds a bit modern for me. <laughs> um, lab coats. Oh. Well, of course, doctors are instructed, instructed not to wear white coats any longer because it's seen as a way of transmitting um, infection. I guess lab coats are important as long as they're changed often enough. Um, Socialising with colleagues. Very important for team building. Um, signing birthday and leaving cards and leaving nice little messages in those. Oh, probably overrated. I haven't had a leaving party yet. <laughs> That's a heavy hint. <laughs> no, I've declined them. <laughs> um, social media in the workplace. Oh, too modern for me. And I can barely cope with my daily emails without engaging with Facebook and Twitter and so on. So I tend to ignore all of them. And the final one is night shifts. Oh, uh, terribly important. Uh, so I suppose I'd have to say they might be underrated. I think the, the people who are on night shifts are, are really crucial and need to be acknowledged. Brilliant. Professor Dane, thank you very much for your time. You're most welcome. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And don't forget, this can be used for your CPD. See you next month for another Biopod. This is Becca. And Rob. Signing, signing off. off. Bye. Bye.